hello, and welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Normally, it would just be Allie and I hanging out with a couple of cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to women who are currently making history or writing about it. We have a very special guest here with us today, Renee Rosen. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me here. Renee is a best-selling author of historical fiction, and we have invited her on our show today to talk about her newest upcoming book, The Circle Graces. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so I write historical fiction. The Social Graces will be my sixth novel, and I'm working on my seventh now. And before that, I was in advertising. I was a copywriter, and I had the, the novel in my desk drawer. I was a terrible employee. I was always late. I cared more about writing fiction than writing TV and radio commercials, and it showed. Um, <laughs> but thankfully, now I get to do this. This is my day job. So every day in the book bunker is a good day. I'm very, very fortunate. That's great. And I was looking at some of the titles of your books and I was like, well, it looks like it's time to refresh every, get on IndieBound and (laughs) get a whole bunch of new books to read for the spring. (laughs) All right. Well, before we get into the book that we're going to be talking about today, we have a special cocktail that we made for your book. So this is just called The Social Graces. And I based this cocktail off of a drink I found online called the Grand Manhattan. It just sounded like something that would (laughs) fall in line with. (laughs) So, and then I added a few things to it because I wanted it to feel like a Manhattan that basically like someone kept adding to like one up someone else. (laughs) (laughs) So it is an ounce and a half of bourbon, a fourth of an ounce of orange liqueur, a fourth of an ounce of sweet vermouth a spritz of fresh lemon juice, and then you top the whole thing off with champagne and garnish with a maraschino cherry. Oh, wow. That sounds fantastic. Cheers. It is very, very good. And you said that you were a part of a book called Drink Like a Writer as well. Our listeners really love drinking. So can you tell us a little bit about that? We, there's a group of us, we all write historical fiction. There's 19 of us all together. And we decided to put together a book, Drink Like a Writer, where we were creating cocktails that went with our books. Um, And it's available for download. It'll be on my website eventually. Um, But right now you can get it down um, on Instagram through the end of the month. It's free download. Um, I came up with the Tipsy Tierra for the Social Graces, and it packs a mean punch. That's all (laughs) I'm going to say. But we had a ball putting it together. Oh, that's so fun. I mean, we love coming up with cocktail recipes. So (laughs) yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, So let's just started talking about the social graces by setting the scene for your two lead ladies. Can you tell us a little bit about the Gilded Age of New York and what it would have been like for women in high society at that time? Yeah, I mean, great question. So we're talking like the 1870s to the early 1900s. And this is a time for women where there were very few privileges, very few outlets. You know, they they didn't work outside the home. They weren't in control of their own money. They had to, you know, get everything signed off by their husbands or their fathers. They couldn't vote. They couldn't own property. So, you know, what was the only reason they got up in the morning was for this thing called society, because at least planning a nine course meal, you know, dinner party took some thought, took some time. There was nothing else for them to do. So they literally created this 
realm, this arena called society, um, so that they could have some influence in their life. And, you know, the more celebrated the hostess, the more powerful the woman. And of course, there was no one more powerful during the Gilded Age than Caroline Astor, or the Mrs. Astor, as she liked to be called. And she ruled society. She was the gatekeeper. She decided who was in and who was left out in the cold. It was all about exclusivity and versus, you know, inclusion. And she literally had a group of 400 which, with her sidekick, Ward McAllister. There was a name of 400 families that were in society. And you were on that list or you were out. Well, and I love, too, that we're talking about this because one of the sentiments I loved was in the prologue when you were talking about how, like, these women, like their husbands, traded in things like gold and money, they're bankers, but these women traded in social currency. I mean, how did they use this social currency and how fragile was it? How easy was it to get kicked out of that group of 400? Oh, my God. You could wear diamonds in the afternoon (laughs) and that was gauche. So, you know, you were out. Um, And, you know, their currency was society. It was who could throw the biggest ball, the most lavish dinner party. Um, you know, that was their power. That was their influence, their guest list. And Mrs. Astor's annual ball was the most coveted guest list ever. And, you know, people, if you weren't invited, you literally sat in the dark with the lights out in your home. So people would think you were out of town because God forbid you shouldn't be at Caroline Astor's ball. Um, and, you know, uh, people got, you know, kicked out of society for, you know, divorce was a big taboo um, and, you know, any kind of scandal. And so they really ran a a tight ship and it was great shame if, if you were outside of society. And this might be a good time to talk about the new money versus the old money, which was a big part of society. So you had two camps within society. You had the old money or the Knickerbockers. And these were the people who were they were the descendants of the first uh, people who arrived and settled New York, the original Dutch settlers. Caroline Astor was a a Knickerbocker. Their rivals were the New Money or the Nouveau Riche. And these were the people who had just come into enormous wealth as a result of the end of the Civil War and the industrial boom, the, the robber barons. So you had the Vanderbilts, Carnegie Mellon, um, Carnegie rather, uh, J.P. Morgan. And, you know, they had all this wealth and they really didn't know what to do with it. So they, they were very eager to show it off. And so while the Knickerbockers were very understated and very refined, the uh, Nouveau Riche were flashy and you know, the Knickerbockers just thought they were so tacky and they didn't want them in society. So it really sort of set up this interesting uh, tug of war until finally the Knickerbockers just said, oh my God, we have to keep up with them. So I guess we do have to wear worth gowns after all. And we do have to have big mansions and throw elaborate balls. Yeah. And you mentioned Vanderbilt, which is interesting because there's a couple last names that everybody knows oh, from yeah. New York and they're <laughs> Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and Carnegie. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How do the Vanderbelts get woven into this story? So Alba Vanderbilt uh, started out, she's from the South. She's from Mobile, Alabama, and she came from a well-to-do family. 
until her father, her mother passed away when she was about 16. Her father had squandered the family's fortune and she basically was starting over again from scratch. And she marries Willie K. Vanderbilt, who's the grandson of the Commodore, who is this old cranky, just loon of a guy uh, who's worth millions and millions. And um, so Alva finally finds herself back in the cotton, sort of say. She's she's wealthy again. Um, but she just because she's wealthy doesn't mean she's in society. Because as Mrs. Astor said, she didn't care for railroad money, and she believed that one's wealth should be inherited, not earned. So... I'm thinking that's a nice gig if you can get it. Right. And uh, so, you know, she really did not want to let the Vanderbilts into society. And Alva not only wanted in society, she wanted to overthrow Mrs. Astor and take over society. You know, she was unconventional. She was really, um, she was a firecracker. And she just thought that they were really stuffy and it was time to shake things up for women and especially for society. Mm. Now, was this like a spectacle for everyone else at the time? Was Because I love the scene that you kind of set up where like, I think they're like at the opera or something. And then, you know, Mrs. Vanderbilt comes in and everybody's like, oh my gosh, how tacky, but I also can't look away. And they're like also watching Mrs. Astor, like see how she reacts to it. So was this just like eye candy for everyone else in society at the time? You know, I think the other women sort of took their cue from Alva. Mm-hmm. or Caroline, but, you know, Alva showed them a different path and they sort of sat back and judged her. And, and within the book, I have sort of like a Greek chorus that is society, the society ladies. And they kind of sit back and they judge her at first, but then they're like, oh my God, look at what's possible. You know, we don't have to be stuffed in this little, you know, box that our, that the men in our lives are putting us in. Mm-hmm. could actually knock the lid off and and venture out there so um so I think that you know they either want to be in Caroline's good graces or they want to be more more like Alva and have a little bit more independence and did the rest of the United States care or was it just New York or just Manhattan or just this group of four hundred women, or was it just like plastered all over? the news everywhere. Well, now this is very interesting. Up until the 1800s, there was no society news. They would mention weddings, they would mention births and things like that. But once these gossip columns and the society news came about, that was a game changer because now the whole world is watching who's sleeping with who and, you know, uh, who, who's left this sort of money, who's spent X amount of money on their cot, their 50-room cottage. And, you know, so um, the, the press was a definite game changer. And, you know, originally I think it was just sort of isolated to Manhattan and Newport, Rhode Island. But once, you know, news of, of duels and scandals, one of them, um, one of Mrs. I don't want to give too much away, but one of Mrs. Astor's daughters ends up in a big scandal that basically goes viral, Gilded Age style. It's in the <laughs> papers, and you know everybody's like reading. You know they can't wait to get there, and there was a gazillion papers back then too, and gossip became a really big part of it. 
readers can expect to find a lot of there's adultery, there's divorce, there's duels, there's um I, I don't want to give the specifics away, but there's some juicy stuff. And the, the greatest part is that it's all based on real events. Mm-hmm. Right. So I couldn't have cooked this stuff up if I yeah. wanted to. You know, <laughs> fact is definitely stranger than fiction. And how did you get introduced to these ladies? Like when you, what, did it fall in line when you were doing research for one of your other books? Or was this something that had always been an interest of yours? Like how did you find them? Well, I had written another book set in the Gilded Age called What the Lady Wants, and it was Gilded Age Chicago. So I always kind of liked the era and, and all. But after I had finished Park Avenue Summer, my agent and my editor and I were sort of brainstorming, what do I do next? Where do I go next? And I knew we were on to something when I got one email from my agent that had mentioned Consuelo Vanderbilt, which was Alva's daughter, and like... An hour later, I got an email from my uh, editor saying, what about the Gilded Age? So I'm like, okay, I need to do some research here. And then just a preliminary sweep, the two people that I was reading about that really stood out to me were Caroline Astor and Alva Vanderbilt and thought, ooh, like just, you know, they they were just trying to outdo each other and one up each other at every turn. And I thought this this could be fun, and you know the the more I researched and the more I worked with the characters, the more alive they became to me they They went from being just these sort of stick figured rich women who were obsessed with society and throwing parties in their clothes to women that really had there was a lot more going on beneath the surface than what I first thought, and that was a nice surprise. Yeah. Now, as you wrote the book, did you find yourself siding with one person over the other? Did your relationship change like as to how you felt mm. about them over the course? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. You know, there were things about Caroline that I definitely related to and I felt for. So she at the start of the book, you know, she's in the prime of her life. She's at the height of her power and she knows she's not going to be able to sustain it forever. There's, you know, a the new crop is coming in, you know, and um, Alva's 20 years younger than her. She's feisty. And, you know, just that fear of if she, if Caroline acknowledged that society was really sort of make-believe, then her whole existence has been worth nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I could really feel for that where she felt her power slipping away. And then Alva, and again, I don't want to give too much away, but this is a time when a lot of husbands had mistresses. It was just a given. And if you were a wife, you couldn't, couldn't deny your husband. You couldn't say, you had no right to say anything. You just turned a blind eye. And Alva was like, uh-uh, not on my watch. And, you know, just to watch her stand up for herself and ultimately for other women uh, was very admirable. You know, some of the other things that she did, you know, I don't think she was a role mother exactly. Um, but then again, neither was Caroline, you know, and, and they, uh, they were very, um, they had very set expectations for their daughters. Mm. 
And did, did their husbands have any sort of like working relationship? Did they get along or were they at odds in society as well? Caroline's husband, first of all, Caroline was much more powerful than her husband, which was sort of unusual. And she had her own money because she had inherited it, which was also unusual. Um, and her husband, William Backhouse Astor, he really wasn't into society. He wasn't digging it at all. So he was off on his yacht or drinking or out with other women. And Caroline got to the point where she didn't want him at her balls. She would like have his friends, like keep him out. I don't want him here, you know, stumbling all over everybody. And he really, he just thought society was very frivolous. And Willie Kay was very materialistic. Imagine that. He had his own buddies, but they didn't work. They didn't you know, they spent money. That's what they did. They had their gentlemen's clubs where they would go and play cards or they would go to the racetrack or, you know, play polo. Um, you know, they were both, uh, they both had their yachts, but I don't know that they ever felt competitive with each other. You know, at one point they were considered the, you know, the three wealthiest men in, in America. It was Willie K. Vanderbilt his brother, and Aster. Now, I think it's interesting because you talk about your sources a little bit. So where did you start with this process? I mean, what kind of sources did you access? Was it hard finding them or was it really easy? Like, did you have to look at old newspapers? What was that process like? God, all of the above. I, I looked at old newspapers. You know, the New York Times time machine is amazing. Um, and I got, I had a stack of books that, you know, everything from books on etiquette to the Vanderbilts to, you know, just the architecture of New York. And so I always start with my research. I start with reading to just get a feel, but then I do want to see it, touch it, feel it. So we went to Newport, which was, um, that was a summer vacation spot for the upper crust. And they went there for anywhere from six to 12 weeks during the summer and they had, I mentioned this before, they had what they called cottages, but they were actually mansions with like 50 plus rooms. And for a six or 12 week stint, these women packed 90 ball gowns, you know, just to get them through the season. Yeah. Yeah. 90 ball gowns because of course, you know, you had, you had to wear something for your daily parade down Bellevue Avenue. And then you had to wear something else, you, had to, you know, for a luncheon. And then you had a reception and then you had a ball. And, you know, the, all they did, I think, was change clothes all day, you know. <laughs> um, so, um, so we went to Newport and looked at Marble House, which was Alva's baby. She, she fancied herself an architect, which was also very interesting. Um, and even though she wasn't licensed, she spoke the language. She designed Petite Chateau, which was her home in, in the city, as well as Marble House and some other properties. Um, and so we walked Cliff Walk. I almost died on Cliff Walk, which is this very treacherous sort of um, wear sensible shoes. That's all I will say. <laughs> if you're going to go on Cliff Walk, wear sensible shoes. And not um, fall down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but it was it was fantastic. And then we went on to Manhattan. But, you know, unfortunately, so much of the Gilded Age isn't there anymore. So uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt's home is now Bergdorf Goodman. So you can kind of see some of the bones there. 
Um, but Caroline Astor's townhouse is the Empire State Building, and Petit Chateau's not there anymore. Yeah, so um, so it, it's hard. I did, you know, research in the uh, Historical Society and all that, and I went to Trinity Church, which is fascinating. Um, and But to really get a feel for, you know, Gilded Age New York, that that's tough. There was also a PBS series that I watched that was wonderful. It's a fabulous, fabulous documentary on Gilded Age New York. Mm. And I mean, I, you know, in my head, I have these pictures of New York and I have pictures of these high society women. And then, you know, I'm reading the book and I can tell you, I could still relate to the idea of trading social currency Mm -hmm. because social media is so present now and the way that we present ourselves is so important. Um, Is that something you were thinking about? Like how people today are going to be able to relate to these women who seem so different and far away? Wow. You know, the, the relatability was a real um, obstacle in the beginning. I had written the book and and I, I really owe this to my amazing editor. And she said, we've got to make these women relatable to women today. And that's when I started to think of Caroline Astor more as like a CEO of a corporation, because that's how she ran society. And I started to think of them as mothers and as wives. And I, you know, sort of pulled away society for a minute and started like, what what is it that they think about at night when they can't fall asleep? What is it that, uh, what's their to-do list all about? You know, Alva had breakfast and lunch with her kids every day. That's what she did, you know. Um, Caroline was up at 8.30 every morning, even if she had been in a ball till four or five in the morning. You know, like clockwork, she was up at 8.30 in the morning to do her correspondence and, um, and thinking about her relationship with her husband and realizing that, you know, maybe he had a hard time with her being more popular and more powerful than him. And, you know, sort of reflecting on that and how they grew apart. Now, I w- it must have been difficult to kind of juggle the incredible histories of these iconic families and these women in the Gilded Age. Did the historic fiction genre give you like a little bit more freedom when deciding what to include and what to, you know, leave out? You know, it, you can go down rabbit holes and which I do many times and I write myself into 20,000 word corners all the time. (laughs) Um, but you know, um, I think historical fiction because it's not narrative nonfiction allows for, a new story to be told. You know, the the facts are out there, but how do you bring them to life? How do you make someone feel what these women felt in that time period? And so I think that's where, you know, just the the ability to sort of re take a cam a blank canvas and start to paint it in with the details of that time period and the specifics of these women and how they went about their lives and their daily activities. Um, 
and and being able to explore themes that you might not find in a nonfiction book about their relationships with their daughters and their frustrations with their mothers or, uh, you know, having an estranged husband who, you know, everybody thinks is a drunk. And how do you deal with that? You know, when you're the queen of society and nobody ever sees your husband, you know, you go to the opera with, you know, another man who's not your husband and yet nobody gossips about that. That seems to be okay because you're the queen of society. Mm. So. Do you have, I know you've written, you're now on your seventh book. Do you have a favorite book that you've written or is it the one you just finished? <laughs> it, it's a little of both. Cause okay. you know, the one, the one you just finished is that's what you've been obsessing about. And that's what, you know, uh, you're, you've been so focused on, but when I look at, at my, my babies all like lined up together, I think, um, Windy City Blues has a very special place in my heart. And that is a story. It's an interracial love story, uh, wrapped around the birth of the Chicago blues, electric blues and the civil rights movement. Um, and it's really much more timely now than it was when I wrote it. Um, it's got the most heft and weight of anything that I've written. Um, and I'm really proud of it. And it has a, a very special place in my heart. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where I'll go next. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we just really appreciate you coming on here and talking about your new book and some of your older books. So that way we can have something to look forward to reading and <laughs> some things to catch up on. So where can people find this book? When is it coming out? So the book is out April 20th, right around the corner. Um, and it's wherever you buy books, if it's, you know, I personally, um, like to support indie bookstores. So indiebound bookshop.org, uh, your local bookstores, um, or whoever your, uh, you know, go-to retailer are, um, it's, it should be pretty widely out there. So, and there's an audio book coming as, as well. So ebook, audio and pa- trade paperback. Oh, that's so great. Did you read the audiobook? Um, they're they're recording it now. Oh, I'm great. so excited. So <laughs> excited. That's fun. Um, and where can people find you on all of your social media? Uh, so on Facebook, Renee Rosen Author. Um, on Twitter, Renee Rosen One. And on Instagram, Renee Rosen with a little underscore. Perfect. Well, We're so excited to share this novel with everyone and Mm -hmm. can't wait for them to read it. And we were so happy that you could join us today to tell us a little bit more about it. Uh, Well, thanks for having me. It's been really fun chatting with you. Of course.
You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.